0: I know we are going to take a very long road into darkness, but I know I can't turn back. It isn't to see the elves now, nor dragons, nor mountains that I want. I don't rightly know what I want, but I have something to do before the end, and it lies ahead, not in the Shire. I must see it through, sir, if you understand me.
1: Welcome to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings on Prime. We're looking at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation. I am joined today by your host, Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Laurelin, one of the two trees of Valinor.
0: Oh, how lovely. I'm a tree. (laughs) I am a tree. Try to do tree (laughs) verb. There you go. And I am joined today by your host, Michael Roland, a.k.a. Marriottic Brandybuck.
1: Oh, everyone's favorite habit, or at least mine.
0: Yes, definitely mine as well. The voice of reason. Uh, Today we have a really exciting show for you. First, we're going to discuss Amazon's surprise decision to move filming of the series to the UK. This was quite shocking. And then we are going to talk about our approach to evaluating cinematic adaptations of literary works.
1: So on Thursday, August 12th, Amazon shocked everyone when it announced that it would be moving production of future seasons of its Lord of the Rings show from New Zealand to the UK. Now, Amazon's stated reason was that the move was part of their effort to consolidate their holdings in the UK. However, it was reported by deadline that New Zealand's strict handling of the COVID-19 pandemic was a factor in the decision. And I I also heard from Fellowship of Fans, uh, they do a second age podcast where they discuss this. And uh, they said that, He said that New Zealand's relatively slow rollout of the COVID vaccine, which would cause their other strict COVID-19-related restrictions to stay in place for longer, that was the straw that that broke the camel's back. Now, notably, Amazon reportedly gave the New Zealand government just a few hours' notice before making their public announcement. Crazy. Not just a surprise for the public, a surprise for New Zealand as well. Amazon will stay in New Zealand through June of 2022 as they finish post-production on season one, but then they will produce season two and probably future series in the UK. The surprise move is obviously a major blow for New Zealand's film industry and will leave the 2,000 or so New Zealanders employed by the Lord of the Rings production out of a job, or at least they'll have less work. I'm sure that they could be... We know that some of them uh, are working on... Amazon's Wheel of Time production, for example. But um, certainly being without the Lord of the Rings show to work on is is gonna be a a major blow to the film industry at large and to a lot of these workers. Now, one small silver lining is that Amazon indicated it will not pursue the 5% subsidy it was going to receive from, from the New Zealand government. So that concession is worth tens of millions of dollars. But obviously New Zealand would rather have the show than the money, which is the whole reason they offered the subsidy in the first place. Uh, yeah, I mean, so what do you think about this, Jen? This is a I, kind of a bomb. I,
0: it is a bomb. I'm actually really shocked. I'm sad that we won't get the gorgeous scenes, uh, scenery that we see in New Zealand. And I think it's going to mess with, um, just a lot of the consistency throughout the show. Like, how are they planning on replicating what they've already created? And that's going to be a huge, huge task. Because I'm assuming that season two will involve at least some of what happened in season one, the setting, the scenery, unless a lot of it was done at a studio. But my understanding was that they were using a lot of landscape, of actual landscape in New Zealand for this season. And so I'm just shocked. I, I understand that COVID, that New Zealand has a really... Um, intense approach to COVID. Uh, they lock down anytime there's even one case, and so I could see how that's really a complicating factor for a, factor for a production team. But, um, but yeah, this was just really surprising to me, and um, I'm wondering how they just all of a sudden move everything, and and how long that's going to take. If this is going to be another time setback,
1: right? Obviously, it's it's a massively complicated process to move. I mean, they have to move. All these sets, I mean, huge, massive sets, they have to break them down, ship them over to the UK, uh, or rebuild them from scratch, probably to some extent. So there's obviously a lot of money that is being spent on this decision. It's not something that they undertook lightly, like, oh, UK has some minor upside, or there's, you know, UK could offer some minor cost savings. You know, any cost savings that UK could have offered, or subsidies that UK could have offered, I'm sure... Would be offset by the loss of the subsidies from the New Zealand government and the cost of moving the production. I mean, it's substantial. So this was decision, I'm sure, was not made lightly. Um, but uh and I I, suppo- I you make uh, you know a good point that it the COVID restrictions certainly complicated the production. I'm sure that's a large part of why it has taken we know that it's a large part of why it has taken so long to film. I mean, things were shut down cast members couldn't fly in and out to see their families. So cast members were almost like held hostage in New Zealand for months at a time because it was so difficult to leave. Um, You know, quarantine uh, protocols were very serious. And, you know, I'm one of those, uh, I applaud all that. I think New Zealand is a model for practically a model for how countries should handle um, COVID. You know, granted they're an Island, they're smaller in terms of population of the country. So maybe they're able to do things that other countries can't. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've had basically zero cases. They've been virtually COVID free. So, you know, good for them. But it's, you're right. It probably was extremely um, complicating for the production. And I guess Amazon was like, look, we're going to go to the UK where we don't have to deal with this and where they've rolled out the vaccine a lot better. So we can rely on vaccines rather than just quarantining and travel restrictions.
0: I also, like you mentioned, the actors. I'm thinking, so you mentioned the actors, but I'm thinking about those local actors and what a terrible thing. What a terrible thing this is going to be for them, because I think there's a lot of restrictions on mm-hmm. on uh, locals being able to travel, and what does that mean for people involved in the production, out of their jobs, and it yeah, just a huge bummer. And are they going the, to have to cast new people? Like, what what is going to happen there?
1: Yeah, I, I bet that most of the major players are pretty happy because I think most of them are from the UK. Like a lot yes, of them are from the a UK. A lot of them are from the UK. And so they're probably like, oh, this is great. I can actually like live in my own apartment (laughs) or my own house um, or at least be, you know, an hour or two away from my family, my friends, not 14-day quarantine and airplane ride away, you know. So I'm sure it makes them much more comfortable and happier campers.
0: Sure. I mean, I guess, yeah, we won't see any of this footage for a long time. I mean, we won't even see season one for another what year right um so you really it's tough to speculate what this is gonna look what season two will look like we don't let alone what it's about right. but um yeah this is surprising and it's and it's a little sad that we're bidding mm-hmm. farewell to New Zealand as I always picture New Zealand as a home of this whole right. world and it's just so well suited to Tolkien's universe so that's yeah. kind of a sad departure there
1: yeah, I think that we all kind of fell in love with New Zealand through Peter Jackson's films. I mean, we're, it, New Zealand kind of feels like the the heart of Middle Earth now, you know, Middle Earth on Earth, you know? So yeah. to say goodbye to that, it almost feels sacrilegious, I'll, even though, of course, Tolkien didn't, as far as I know, never went to New Zealand and didn't have New Zealand in mind. But nonetheless, the emotional impact of the movies was so strong and the beauty of the New Zealand landscape is so um intense that
0: exactly I,
1: I have an emotional connection to new zealand through those yeah, absolutely. films and it feels it almost to. feels wrong to, yeah to it film almost it feels else. wrong
0: <laughs> i have never have you been to new zealand because i never have but i'm really dying to go and i'm definitely gonna go no, someday yeah. and do the whole the whole tour like see i think we're doing that, that together
1: on this podcast we're yeah like
0: absolutely packing oh, up the
1: families and we're yeah. gonna go on a trip
0: forcing them (laughs) to go halfway around the world. Well, if you guys have stories that you want to share on this podcast, drop us a little voice message of actually going to New Zealand and seeing those sites and what that was like for you because we'd love to hear about it and live vicariously through you. Um, And none of us can really go to New Zealand right now (laughs) for the foreseeable future. So it'd be fun to uh, just go there in our imaginations. Yeah. I Um, I think
1: that most of the time people – would not care about this sort of thing. Like, oh, this show is getting filmed in, you know, England or, you know, set locations are barely uh, worth mentioning usually, but in a Lord of the Rings production, this actually has like an emotional um, flavor to it just because of how connected we are to New Zealand. Um, So that's why it's so newsworthy. But also I think in terms of, you pointed out continuity, Mm -hmm, it's mm going to create challenges. I mean, so there's, there's two components to the continuity question the first is i think a lot of people were speculating all right we're in new zealand filming in new zealand the same place that the films were filmed in are we going to see some continuity in aesthetics in design and settings mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. we've seen uh, caradras in in mm-hmm. the lord of the rings we've seen all these places in middle earth and these are places that will still exist like it's the same middle earth for the most part i mean you know it's thousands of years apart there will be differences but the um geography will right. be you just the same universe that. you can't yeah.
0: replicate that in a studio you can't mm-hmm. replicate the weather i mean i guess there's a lot you can do digitally but then it looks it still looks um that it's it looks messed with it looks interfered right, right. with overwrought all these things you know so, it, yeah the they, natural... they can keep the
1: sets the same like major set locations sure but They had an opportunity filming in New Zealand to do wide, um, expansive shots of the landscape, you know, of characters running through and seeing certain mountains in the background. You can use the same mountains. You can shoot in the same place so that fans of the Lord of the Rings trilogy or even the Hobbit trilogy can recognize that geography and Mm -hmm. feel some connection, some through line throughout the films and now the show. Um, That's going to be a lot harder, if not impossible, to do now by moving the the uh, production to the uk
0: yeah i guess they could cleverly piece together those shots like take them from what they've already filmed uh, <laughs> right. but good luck keeping the uk fans out of your business uh if you're filming in the uk totally, i know there's some totally. there's some rabid tolkien fans in the uk i know this for a fact and i mean that's where tolkien that's, that's where true. that's his home right. right and they've been so secretive about this series you know filming uh alternate alternate sets and Uh uh, decoy uh sets and they've been so strict about letting spectators in and and that's in new zealand this island nation like you said that's not you know it's not a huge place and but the uk and not nearly as populated Exactly. Not nearly. As I think this is going to be a different story. I think they're going to have a real tough time keeping a tighter, tight lid on it. Which, right. frankly, I'm totally, <laughs> I'm happy about it. Maybe,
1: yeah. Maybe they're giving up the ghost on that. They're like, we've done a good job keeping it secret so far for season one. But once the show actually secret, starts, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But once the show <laughs> starts, maybe they're like, all right, the show started. You know, we'll see normal leaks, normal spoilers, the way that we see in other shows. But you know, fellowship of fans who is our main source of news. I mean, he clearly has a spy in New Zealand. I but, think he
0: has multiple spies,
1: but he is located in the UK. He said that he's oh, so now
0: he's going to be the one spying. Yeah. Just he's himself actually with binoculars. Yeah. He's going
1: to be peeping over the, over the fence line himself. So
0: <laughs> that's, that's great. I'm going to start a GoFundMe me for him, like get him really great <laughs> spy gear. So he keeps, right, feeding right. Us, keeps sourcing his information. It'll
1: be the inspector gadget of the Lord of the Rings fandom. Well, one thing that uh, was kind of interesting, um, and I don't want to get too deep into this because it's kind of getting into the contracts and stuff, but Fellowship of Fans had copies of memorandums of understanding between Amazon and the New Zealand government. And Ooh. so one of the things, so, you know, a couple hours notice, we already touched on that, that, that Amazon only gave the New Zealand government a couple hours notice, which is crazy. Wild. And yeah, obviously that's, that's got to be a violation of any reasonable expectation that the New Zealand government had in doing business with Amazon. Like, oh, you're going to give us a couple hours notice before picking up and moving. Ending um, the
0: contract. They're ending the right, contract. Right. That's so weird.
1: And I, I guess that the Memorandum of Understanding itself, um, and there there is a series-long memoram, Memorandum of Understanding, and there were going to be separate M, uh, MOUs for each season. So I forget if it was, I think it was like the series-long M O U. But basically said, if you're going to terminate this relationship, if you're going to move to another location, you have to give us 12 months' notice. That was the idea that Amazon would give New Zealand basically a year. You'd have to tell them what? a year in advance, and they just <laughs> Amazon's like, "All right, this is this ain't a real contract. It's just an MOU. We're just going to give you a couple hours and suffer the consequences." Oh my gosh,
0: that's crazy! So that's not a breach of contract. It's just like that's I mean, I- what they should do, but it's not legally binding. Uh, I haven't seen the entire thing.
1: I haven't seen the entire contract. I mean, sometimes the phrase memorandum of understanding, um, or there are similar phrases. Sometimes they're kind of like agreements to agree where they're not really binding contracts, but they're just kind of like, here's a general outline of the terms, but we're going to have to continue negotiating important points as we go. So the, how binding it is, can kind of fluctuate. Um, I'm not sure if this is one of those contracts or if it is actually like a firmly flushed out or, or if certain terms are actually firmly fleshed out and binding commitments. I don't really know because I haven't seen the, the whole agreement, but, um, either way, the New Zealand, someone's getting fired in, in the New Zealand government, first of all, because losing that amount of business is, is, Huge for the government. I mean, but
0: it has entire uh, yeah, absolutely. But it ha- I mean, these are such unprecedented times. You know, if truly COVID nineteen is the main factor in the decision, right.
1: yeah, that's true.
0: Um, yeah, maybe there was nothing that they could have done, but cons- yeah, there's nothing they could have done. But consolidating their holdings in the UK that seems like a, just a really, I don't really understand why that would be. A sounds like BS motivator. to me. Yeah, that sounds like BS to me. So we have to. I have to assume that with the surge of the Delta variant it has a lot to do with it. I
1: mean, it could be. I know that the film industry. I don't know a lot about the film industry in the UK, but there are a really good number of productions that are being filmed there and that have been filmed there. So they have a pretty robust film industry that is growing. So it could be that Amazon's just saying, "Look, we want to put more of our eggs in the UK basket. Um, there are going to be economies of scale. We have lots of sets. We have lots of productions going on. So." We're gonna get more out of filming more of our shows in the UK than in investing in the New Zealand government and the New Zealand film industry. So it, that could be the case. Obviously, I don't have any insight into that, but
0: doesn't that could all be come what they down mean. to dollars and cents? Amazon, we have an emotional <laughs> attachment to New Zealand.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: I don't know. It seems like bad business to me a little bit. On the on one hand, just like what about future productions? With you know, do they I mean, want I to wonder... do future productions?
1: I'm I'm sure that they didn't commit to do the entire remainder, like the the uh, four subsequent seasons in the UK. I'm sure they haven't committed to that, so it could be that maybe they return to mm-hmm. New Zealand at some some point. I'm sure the New Zealand government will, you know, be willing to keep those lines of communication open because it would be a huge boon to get the show back at some point. So mm-hmm. um, that that's always a possibility. I'm sure. Um,
0: yeah. Well, one can only hope. One can only hope they return. Yeah. They return to that suite. Sweet- Sweet Island Nation, Sayonara, Kiwis. Sayonara, (laughs) Michael and I will come to you someday. That is our promise. That is. They're like, not now. Please stay away. Maybe that'll be our gift. Our our gift to ourselves.
1: After I don't know, like at the end of this podcast, we'll do a a a tour and we'll podcast. You know, you mean on our deathbed? Because we're
0: going on forever. (laughs) So when we're like ninety-five, we'll be like. Michael, this was where Mount Doom was filmed.
1: Walking our, yeah, using our walker (laughs) to crawl up the (laughs) Mount Doom trail. We'll be
0: like Frodo and Sam, so I'll have to carry (laughs) you on my back.
1: I don't think either of us at 95 are going to be carrying anybody (laughs) on our backs.
0: I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of good gene editing out there, so we'll see. Uh,
1: Okay. All right. (laughs) Are we becoming mutants here? Anti-aging. Cyborgs? Anti-aging
0: technology. This is a whole element
1: to this podcast I didn't uh, anticipate. (laughs)
0: Going all kinds of crazy directions. human
1: enhancement all right i, I can get down <laughs> <It's> with that
0: <laughs> speaking of human enhancement in the next generation what are kids talking about
1: <laughs> what are kids talking about uh so today we're, we're going to do another installment of what are kids talking about and this one is going to feature uh, a friend of yours jen um we're, we're going to play a clip from your friend jesse out in north carolina
0: rosie who is tom bombadil
1: That's what Jesse's kid is talking about.
0: Adorable.
1: So I think it's time to get into today's main event. Uh, Every week, we start the show by telling you that on this podcast, we look at Tolkien through the lens of adaptation, but we've never stopped to really talk about what the lens of adaptation means to us.
0: And since we're going to spend the next several episodes watching and talking about the largest and most successful Lord of the Rings adaptation of all time, Peter Jackson's film trilogy, we figured now is a good time to do that.
1: Yeah, we're very excited about what's coming up. Uh, Over the next few months, we are going to watch Peter Jackson's trilogy about 20 minutes at a time. And on each episode of our podcast, we'll break down that portion of the film. We'll talk about the cinematic techniques used by Jackson and his team, so that gets into lighting, costumes, camera angles, editing, all that stuff. We'll talk about the acting, the score, the script, and of course, we'll talk about the many changes they made to characters and the narrative to explore whether they successfully brought the core of Tolkien's work to the screen.
0: So if you are a longtime listener, you already know that we don't take or tell ourselves too seriously. We like we're to wacky. laugh on this podcast. We're wacky. We like to joke around, and we like to enjoy what we're doing. So don't worry. That's not going to change. Uh, we won't get too analytical. We're mostly going to be focused on having a lot of fun, and we have wonderful guests lined up to help us do that. And ultimately, we want to recapture that feeling that we had as kids the feeling that, you know, had us coming home from the movie theater and staying up late into the night, talking with your friends about Lord of the Rings or talking about Lord of the Rings, the, the books or the novels with your friends. You know, or the feeling when you discovered the wider legendarium and and talked about Mm, all about that. So good. And we want you to have that same kind of feeling as you listen along with us. So, before every episode, we're going to tweet out the timestamps of the scenes that we're going to be discussing so that you can watch along with us. We want to turn this into a true watch party. And if you have thoughts about those scenes, you can let us know and we might feature your comment in an episode of the pod so make sure to follow us on facebook twitter at lotr party and email us at watch at gmail.com to engage with us as we watch these adaptations of the lord of the rings and we are also brand new to instagram and we're watch party lotr on prime that's our instagram handle
1: and we might just uh tweet out some drinks that we're planning on drinking or some food or snacks or i don't know clothes we plan on wearing so if you really want to uh you know go along with us you can wear the same clothes we're wearing while we watch the show <laughs> creepy
0: I'll definitely be sending out some cocktail recipes so stay tuned for those mm-hmm. some Lord of the Rings themed cocktails.
1: Lord of the Rings themed cocktails. I'm mead is basically the extent of it. Maybe some red wine
0: <laughs> <laughs> both will be prominently featured.
1: Yeah we're going to be uh brewing our own mead. Do you brew mead? Do you, it's honey. It's, I don't know. We'll be making it. We're getting Bjorn over to our house.
0: We're going to get really fancy.
1: All right, so what do we mean when we say we look at Tolkien through the lens of adaptation? And perhaps more importantly, why even approach Tolkien in this way? The Lord of the Rings is a literary work after all, so why not focus solely on the text? Is there really anything new we can learn about Tolkien's writings by looking at someone else's adaptation of it?
0: Those questions are eloquently answered by Professor Linda constanzo here in her 2006 book, Literature into Film, Theory and Practical Approaches. She says that examining a novel and novel-based film together not only aids our appreciation of each separate work, but also yields insights and concepts that emerge through consideration of the relationship of the two works.
1: As an analogy, she compares this approach to something called a diptych. A diptych is a painting technique common in the Middle Ages and early Renaissance, in which two separate independent canvases or panels, each depicting antithetical or complementary states of the same theme, are placed side by side. Although each panel can stand alone, when placed together, the interplay between them yields insights that studying the panels in isolation would not achieve. So the the motifs in the first panel evoke and comment on the second, just as the second panel evokes and comments on the first. And in that way, the panels illuminate each other by revealing previously unconsidered similarities and sympathies that run through the otherwise differing works. So she says that the same phenomenon can occur when we set a novel side by side with its related but different cinematic adaptation. So by looking at the novel and film relationally, we apply an intertextual approach between them, which prompts us to seek answers to new questions we might not have otherwise asked.
0: So now we know the why we're approaching Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation, but what is that lens that we're looking through? What factors should we consider as we evaluate an adaptation? Tolkien himself had a few things to say on the subject, and since this is a podcast about Tolkien, we'll start there. In letter 210 of the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, Tolkien comments on with great frustration what he deemed to be a very, very bad screenplay adaptation of The Lord of the Rings drafted by Morton Grady Zimmerman. In this letter, Tolkien says that the canons of narrative art in any medium cannot be wholly different and the failure of poor films is often precisely in an exaggeration and in the intrusion of unwarranted matter owing to not perceiving where the core of the original lies. And I'm going to repeat that because that is important. And that is, for me, this is a tidy little summation. Perceiving where the core of the original lies.
1: Yeah, so that gives us the beginnings of an analytical framework. By stating that the canons of narrative art in any medium cannot be wholly different, Tolkien impliedly acknowledges that the canons of narrative art can be somewhat different, so long as they're not wholly different. He later acknowledges this more explicitly when discussing Zimmerman's contraction of time in his screenplay. Tolkien says, quote, contraction of this kind is not the same thing as the necessary reduction or selection of the scenes and events that are to be visually represented. So clearly, Tolkien understood that sometimes a novel's scenes and events need to be reduced or removed when they are being visually represented. Also, Tolkien's complaint that poor films fail due to the, quote, intrusion of unwarranted matter owing to not perceiving where the core of the original lies tells us that fidelity to the core of the original is paramount to Tolkien and that the intrusion of new or different material may be permissible, provided that it aligns with the core of the original.
0: So you're probably thinking to yourself that this framework sounds very wise, but also very vague. What exactly is he referring to when he talks about quote, canons of narrative art. Just how different is wholly different? How do we determine the core of the original? How exactly do we implement this in practice without totally subjective and inconsistent results? Unfortunately, Tolkien does not elaborate Professor Tom Shippey, the world's foremost Tolkien scholar, pointed out this problem in his lecture titled, Tolkien Book to Jackson Script, The Medium and the Message, in which he considers the extent to which the narrative medium affects the message of the narrative. As a side note, this is a wonderful lecture, and both the text and audio is available on the Swarthmore College website, so I encourage everyone to check it out. Tom Shippey evaluates Peter Jackson's adaptation by considering three questions. First... Is the overall effect of the movies different from the overall effect of the books? Second, how far is this inevitable result of different media? And lastly, how much of it is a result of deliberate editorial or scriptwriter decision?
1: So we have Tolkien telling us that the canons of narrative art cannot be wholly different and that we need to stick to the core of the original. And Shippey breaks that down further by saying we need to ask whether there's a difference in overall effect whether those differences are the inevitable result of the different media or whether it was a deliberate decision by the scriptwriter. Now, we really like the first part of Shippy's framework that we should look at the overall effect. But the rest of his test doesn't quite hit the bull'seye for us because its focus on differences and whether the differences were necessary, that subtly implies from the outset that all differences are bad things to be avoided if at all possible and that a change is forgivable only if it was unavoidable. For example, Shippy talks about the pressures of the studio system and the need to appeal to a younger audience as excuses for changes that he otherwise finds regrettable. Now, we agree that looking at differences is an important part of analyzing an adaptation, but we don't start with the assumption that narrative changes always take us further away from the core of the original, as Shippy seems to imply. To the contrary, Because film is a different medium than literature, it necessarily must utilize different techniques to tell the same story. The differences between the mediums are vast, but for example, as a primarily auditory and visual medium, film engages different senses. It is also consumed in one sitting over a couple of hours, rather than multiple sittings over several days, weeks, or months, as a novel is. Because the storytelling techniques used in film and literature are different Telling the same core story often requires substantial changes to dialogue, scenes, characters, settings, and even plot. Keep in mind that these individual components, dialogue, scenes, characters, settings, and plot, are not themselves the story. They're not the core of the story. Though On the surface, they may seem like crucial, inseparable pieces to the story. In actuality, they're really just raw materials which the author builds into a story using the tools in his literary toolbox. But the filmmaker has a different toolbox with different tools, so sometimes different materials are needed for the filmmaker to build the same story. In our view, these changes, if done appropriately, should be applauded, not viewed with begrudging acceptance, because they actually bring the film or can bring the film closer to the core of the original than it would have been if no changes were made.
0: But all of this begs the million dollar question. How do we know when a film's differences bring us closer to the core of the original or when the differences are just too different? Isn't this the trickiest part? What is the core of the original? Is there even an immutable core that every reader can agree upon if only they look hard enough? Or is the core of the work entirely subjective? Or is it somewhere in between? Professor Linda Constanzo Cahir is again helpful on this point. She says that the first step in exploring the merits of literature-based films is to see them as translations of the source material and to understand the difference between adaptation and translation. To adapt really means to change the core function of something to suit it for a new purpose. Translation, on the other hand, is to move a text from one language to another while seeking to preserve its underlying meaning. That is more akin to what filmmakers do, or try to do, when making a literature-based film. They translate a story from the language of literature to the language of film while seeking to preserve the underlying meaning, or as Tolkien would say, the core of the original.
1: I especially like the idea of looking at things as translations, given that Tolkien was a philologist and he translated text professionally. Professor Cahill points out that even textual translation is not a simple process. It's, you're not just doing one-to-one vocabulary swaps. Languages utilize different grammatical structures and syntax. Vocabulary in one language often has no clear analog in the other language. Not to mention that linguistic elements used in prose or poetry, like meter, rhyme, alliteration, puns, double entendre, homonyms, etc., are often unique to the native language and near impossible to reproduce fully in another language. Linguists seeking to translate an artistic text from one language to another then have a very difficult job because they have to use their judgment to determine what they believe is the core meaning of the source text a process that unavoidably involves the linguist's subjective interpretation of the story and themes, which will naturally be affected by the linguist's own unique background, perspective, and biases, all while they're trying to reproduce the story in the new language. Sometimes the original story, it's not about meaning so much as uh, the music of the words, and how do you reproduce the musicality of poetry or prose in another language, when the words that you were translating into are completely different. As you can see, the complex problems that emerge in this process, even just in the context of Tolkien's works, are well-documented. For example, Eric Reinders, Associate Professor and Director of Undergraduate Studies for the Department of Religion at Emory University, recently gave a fascinating talk at the Tolkien Society's 2021 Summer Seminar called Questions of Caste in the Lord of the Rings and its Multiple Chinese Translations. Professor Reinders analyzed how Chinese translations dealt with the use of racially coded phrases in the Lord of the Rings like sallow skin or slant eyes. Should the Chinese translation use language that reflects an anti-Chinese sentiment, as one could argue is present in this source text? Or should they use straightforward descriptive language that strips out any racist connotations? A decision either way involves value judgments by the translator. As this example, hopefully illustrates, translation is no simple process and triggers numerous complex questions about the meaning of the source text, the intent of the original author, and the impact of the source text on the reader. Thus, Professor Cahill tells us that every act of translation is simultaneously an act of interpretation, and that translation ultimately produces a new, unique work that stands on its own, independent from, though still related to, the original literary source. In the same way, every time you read a novel, you are translating the words on the page into images, sounds, and feelings in your own mind. You are engaging in an interpretive translational process that ultimately makes the version of the novel you have read totally unique to you. That's why it is so fun to talk to your friends about books you've read, because everyone experiences and interprets them differently. Those conversations wouldn't be nearly as interesting if the book's meaning was totally obvious, purely objective, and immutable. All the same challenges faced by the linguist are faced by the filmmaker, and I would say even more profoundly, any literature based film is inherently going to involve the subjective interpretation of the filmmaker, which is unavoidably informed by their background, including their nationality, culture, and personal experiences.
0: That was the position held by Jean-Luc Godard, French-Swiss film director and pioneer of the 1960s French New Wave film movement. He believed that the prevailing insistence on fidelity to the source material was based on the false assumption that there is a core, stable text that can be steadfastly translated. In Goddard's view, originality is introduced the moment someone begins reading literature, which leads to the unavoidable conclusion that translations to film are unique and independent works reflecting the views of the filmmaker as well as the original source material. Thus, Professor Cahill says that each filmmaker must determine the relative importance of various storytelling elements to the core of the original work. How important is the structure of the narrative, its themes, its setting, its tone, its characters? The answer will be different for every piece of literature and will also often be different from filmmaker to filmmaker. With this in mind, Cahill then puts translations into three categories, literal, traditional, and radical. Now, I think that's what she's described, what she's describing is more of a spectrum than actual distinct categories, but the general idea is that a literal translation reproduces plot and every little detail as closely as possible. A traditional translation attempts to maintain overall traits, but will change specific details as deemed necessary by the filmmaker, and a radical translation reshapes the book in a more extreme and revolutionary way.
1: Now, while Cahill gives lip service to the idea that each type of translation could be effective depending on the nature of the underlying source material, it's pretty clear that she believes that literal translations rarely work. Literal translations put more focus and really too much focus on fidelity to details than they do on fidelity to the core themes of the work. So they usually end up being a shallow treatment that has very little to say and usually misses the point of the underlying work. Put differently, they miss the forest for the trees.
0: Notably, this sentiment was echoed in the appendices to The Lord of the Rings films by none other than Jonathan Gilbert, editor of The Fellowship of the Ring, who said, You know, I always find that literal adaptations don't work. I think you've got to find what you think is essential to the book and make your movie of that. So, using very similar language... Cahill indicates, and I think we agree, that films in the middle of the spectrum, traditional translations that maintain overall traits but that make changes as necessary to suit the medium, are generally the most effective.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I should point out, you know, we're not going to be advocating massive or um, unnecessary changes or celebrating those. We want to see Tolkien's work adapted, uh, and we don't want to see something that just takes too many liberties. But at the same time, we recognize that to see the heart and soul of what we love about the Lord of the Rings, sometimes details need to be changed. So in our approach, we don't want to become slaves to the details because doing that, we believe, will end up falling short of the real heart of the story. That's called nitpicking. Yeah, it's called nitpicking. And we don't want to do that here. Uh, Mm -mm, You know, mm -mm. Sometimes we love, you know, and I do that sometimes. (laughs) I want to see details, um, uh, you know
0: we might note it but we will we're definitely not going not. to we're not going to knock it if it's if it's missing unless I, it's you know very critical
1: yeah and i fall into that trap all the time i mean uh, you know i read the chapter and then i watch it and i notice every little change like oh i really missed that i really missed that i really missed that um but then i take a step back and i go did i really miss it like if it was in there would it make for a better movie and that's kind of what we're Trying to figure out here—that's um, the analytical process we want to go through—and uh, you know, part of the point of this exercise is to remind ourselves that sometimes those changes to details are necessary in right, order to stay true mediums. to the core. Yeah, and Tolkien himself acknowledged that changes are sometimes necessary. Now, remember what he said in Letter One Thirty-One when criticizing Zimmerman's contraction of the chronology. He said that, quote, contraction of this kind is not the same thing as the necessary reduction or selection of the scenes and events that are to be visually represented.
0: Cahill goes on to give us her own four-part rubric for evaluating literature-based films. First, quote, the film must communicate definite ideas concerning the integral meaning and value of the literary text as the filmmakers interpret it. Second, the film must exhibit a collaboration of filmmaking skills always important. Third, the film must demonstrate an audacity to create a work that stands as a world apart, that exploits the literature in such a way that a self-reliant but related aesthetic offspring is born. And fourth, the film cannot be so self-governing as to be completely independent of or antithetical to the source material. Now, I like this framework because it's consistent with Tolkien's call to stay true to the core of the original while also recognizing that the film has to be a cohesive, skillfully made work of art that can stand on its own two feet whether or not the viewer has read the original novel.
1: Yeah, I I like it too, but it is designed to be a framework that is generally applicable to all films, and we are a podcast about specifically The Lord of the Rings, so I think we need to tweak it a little bit to better suit our purposes. And to do that, let's bring it full circle and come back to Tolkien.
0: We're always going to come back to Tolkien, folks. That's what we do here.
1: Yeah. Uh, Going back to Tolkien's letters, we know that Tolkien was definitely open to the idea of adaptations or translations of The Lord of the Rings and possibly even open to new stories set in his legendarium. In letter 131 to Milton Waldman, which as a side note, I should mention, is an absolutely amazing letter. Tolkien essentially summarizes the history of his whole legendarium while also talking about the underlying themes and what he was trying to accomplish. So seriously, if you're going to read just one of his letters, make it this one. And if you own a copy of the Silmarillion, then you might already have it because the letter was reprinted in full in the second edition of the Silmarillion. So anyway, in this letter... He says that when he started creating the world, he, quote, had a mind to make a body of more or less connected legend, and I would draw some of the great tales in fullness and leave many only placed in the scheme and sketched. The cycles should be linked to a majestic whole and yet leads scope for other minds and hands wielding paint and music and drama, end quote.
0: That's beautifully put. And in letter 198, a 1957 letter to his publisher, Rainer Unwin, addressing an inquiry from an American filmmaker seeking to do a cartoon film of Lord of the Rings, Tolkien says, As far as I'm concerned, personally, I should welcome the idea of an animated motion picture with all the risk of vulgarization. <laughs>
1: That's not what Tolkien sounded like. I know, it's not all. all what he sounded
0: like. <laughs> it's just such a funny quote and I wanted to yeah, <laughs> do it. Yeah,
1: He's like, I welcome the idea, but also... It's- Could make it vulgar.
0: Could make it horribly vulgar.
1: But yeah, he was really open to the idea of other people attempting to translate his works to the screen. And in fact, his earliest hope was to create a world large enough for other minds and hands wielding paint and music and drama. So he really had his sights set on other people entering into this world, or at least at one time that was his intention.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, And we should point out that while he was open to the idea in theory, uh, in practice, he was very critical of most of the attempts in his lifetime to adapt Lord of the Rings. And he was very skeptical that it was even possible to create a dramatized version of his story.
1: For example, in 1955, the BBC produced a multi-part radio dramatization of the Lord of the Rings. Now, this is no longer in print, unfortunately, but uh, Tolkien did not mince words about that effort. In letter 176, he said, quote, I think I think poorly of the broadcast adaptations, except for a few details. We're just
0: going there now. Yeah.
1: I, was I getting into a Scottish accent? I'm not good at accents. <laughs> uh, except for a few details, I think they are not well done. Even granted the script and the legitimacy of the Enterprise, which I do not grant. <laughs> and mm. later in letter 198... He said that he would find the vulgarization of a cartoon adaptation, quote, less painful than the sillification achieved by the BBC.
0: Sillification. I'm definitely going to use that word. Uh, He disliked the BBC's dramatization so much. He even remarked in letter 175 that I think the book quite unsuitable for dramatization and I have not enjoyed the broadcasts, though they have improved. I thought Tom Bombadil was dreadful but worse still was the announcer's preliminary remarks that Goldberry was his daughter (laughs) and that Willow Man was an ally of Mordor. Horrors. And in letter 194, written a year later, he called the Lord of the Rings very unsuitable for dramatic or semi-dramatic representation. If that is attempted, it needs more space. A lot of space.
1: More space, huh? Perhaps like an episodic television show that will tell the story over five seasons in like uh, 50 hours?
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> but uh, Tolkien gives us his most cutting commentary in the Zimmer, Zimmerman letter, letter 210, which we talked about at the top of this episode. It is a, it is a savage letter. And if you like cutting commentary and Tolkien's quick wit, um, you should read this letter as well. Uh, after you read letter 131, read this letter. It is hilarious. And I feel really, really bad for Zimmerman. Um, But uh, in that letter, he goes on at length about every problem, large and small, with Zimmerman's screenplay, which I won't recount in full, but he does make a few comments that are particularly noteworthy for our purposes because they don't merely identify discrepancies. They start to reveal what Tolkien considered to be the core of The Lord of the Rings that should not be compromised in any dramatization. For example, first, he complains that Zimmerman quote, has cut the parts of the story upon which its characteristic and peculiar tone principally depends, showing a preference for fights, and he has made no serious attempt to represent the heart of the tale adequately, that is, the journey of the ring bearers, end quote. So that tells us that Tolkien viewed the characteristic and peculiar tone of the Lord of the Rings, which I should I will say is akin sort of to medieval legend, uh, Tolkien considered that as being very important. And He did not care for fight scenes. Now, that might surprise. (laughs) Yeah, me neither. And that might surprise the casual Tolkien fan or fans who have only watched the movies because on the surface, the tale appears to be about a war between good and evil. And certainly plenty of battles occur in the books and a lot of time is spent on those battles in Peter Jackson's films. But if you look deeper at the text, you realize that Tolkien spends very little time on battles or fights. Mm -hmm, He is much mm -hmm. more interested in the journey that his characters take.
0: Tolkien says that one of, quote, one of Z's chief faults is his tendency to anticipate scenes or devised use later, thereby flattening the tale out. Here, Tolkien is referring to the fact that The Lord of the Rings uses a complex narrative structure found in medieval literature called interlacing, in which the chronology of the different threads of the story is not clear to the reader, which keeps the reader uncertain of what will happen or what is happening to all the characters at any point in the story. This technique is designed to create a feeling of bewilderment disorientation and suspense in the reader that mirrors the feelings of characters in the story and which is aimed to reflect the confusing flow of events that people perceive in the real world. When Tolkien criticizes Zimmerman for flattening the tale out, he means that Zimmerman is telling the story in a more modern and straightforward way that eliminates the subtle effects of Tolkien's interlaced story structure. So, I think we can say that the interlacing effect is something that Tolkien felt is a core element of The Lord of the Rings.
1: Absolutely. Now, there's so much to talk about from that letter um, and from many others of his letters, but we have to stop somewhere and get to the point of this episode, which is, what is our framework going to be as we evaluate adaptations of The Lord of the Rings? How will we determine whether it is faithful to the core of the original?
0: So ours is a five-part test. First, at a very basic level, the film has to stand on its own and be well-made. We can't even get to whether the film is faithful to the source material, to the source text, if the filmmaker screwed up the basics of filmmaking. Lighting, dialogue, acting, pacing, plot holes, all of that goes into number one.
1: Second, the film must stand on its own and make sense even if you haven't read the book. If the movie is exploring deep themes, that all has to happen on screen. It doesn't count if your friend that read the books has to explain afterwards, well, you see, if you'd read the book, you would know how important the <laughs> scene really is, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> that just doesn't work. The movie has to stand on its own, and and that will apply equally to Amazon's adaptation. The show has to stand on its own, especially because there's less book to rely on. Um, the the show really has to be its own unique work of art.
0: Oh, Definitely definitely we're going to be implementing this framework, a lot of aspects of this framework to that series as well. So it's good that we're establishing it now. Um, So our third element is the flip side of that coin. So we will call it simply the Easter egg test. The film should not exist in a vacuum that totally ignores the fact that it is drawn from source material that created a much larger universe. The film should contain subtle nods to the source material Nods that might slip by the casual viewer, but that will engage the superfan, us, ding, ding, (laughs) ding, on a deeper level. This element is unique to adaptations of Tolkien or of other fantasy or sci-fi franchises where the story is set within a broader mythology. You have to be very careful with Easter eggs because if done poorly, it ends up just being moronic fan service that is distracting and violates element number two. But if done well, not only is it fun for the superfan, but it adds depth and richness and epicness of scale that all fans will be able to feel.
1: Fourth, the film must utilize the tools unique to the cinematic medium to recreate the feel and tone of the book. As we talked about earlier, Tolkien felt that the Lord of the Rings had a characteristic and peculiar tone which in the book is the result of Tolkien's beautiful and archaic prose and poetry and his use of interlacing in the narrative structure. Obviously, archaic prose and poetry is not as available in the cinematic context. So the filmmaker, on the other hand, must wield music and sound design, costumes, lighting, special effects, editing, all the visual and auditory tools at his disposal to recreate that same tone that Tolkien so expertly and brilliantly crafted in the text.
0: And lastly, and this is an important one, to what extent did the film make or fail to make changes to the story necessary to bring the core thematic elements of The Lord of the Rings to the screen? Now, I'm going to make a disclaimer right here. I am sure our conception of what constitutes the core thematic elements will evolve as we go through this process. In truth, there are several themes and sub-themes, and part of the fun will be debating with you about how they should be prioritized.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm so excited for this because obviously I've read Lord of the Rings many, many times over the course of my life, but I think that approaching it this way and you know going through it 20 minutes at a time and watching the movie and comparing it to the books and talking with you about it and applying this five part test, I'm excited by the prospect that my view of the text or interpretation of the text will change, you know, which it hasn't, yeah. I, you know, it does change. My reading of it has changed over the course of my life, but um, you know, as you get older, it changes less and less, right? You get older, you get yeah. set in your ways, but uh, I think my view of things could change significantly from this yeah. process. And I'm really excited by that.
0: I'm excited by that as well. And I think I'm excited to come to it with this framework in mind. Yeah. And I know things are going to hit me much differently as an adult than they did as a, as a teenager or a preteen. Right. And um, I think there'll be a, a lot of enjoyment involved, and I think there'll be a lot of analysis involved. Uh, contrary to what I said earlier, we won't get too analytical. We are going to get analytical, but we're going to have fun doing it. <laughs> yeah. So I know I'm contradicting myself, but <laughs> but it must be said, we are applying an analytical framework to it. but. You know, I think that everybody it's going to deepen our enjoyment and understanding yeah. of of this film and of this work, and that I'm very excited for as well,
1: yeah, yeah, me too and you know we're we're gonna do some analysis and we're also just gonna goof off a whole lot with some fun guests who have their own perspective and their own um, subjective take on the Lord of the Rings and you know we're just gonna be mixing it up with a lot of different folks, and that's gonna be a huge part of the experience for us and a huge part of what will change the way we view lord of the rings is is talking about it with all these new guests with with interesting takes so i'm super psyched for that
0: and a lot of the guests we have coming on just love this story and for me it always comes back to the story the importance of story in our lives to see ourselves reflected in story to to use story as a medium for how we see the world right and this particular story has impacted so many people. So I, I can't wait to uh, to get just a variety of opinions on this podcast, a variety of takes.
1: And we're going to be starting that uh, in just one short week. So we're really excited about that. We will be joined on the first episode, kicking off the Peter Jackson Fellowship of the Ring film. Um, we'll be joined by a very special guest, Jordan Rennells of the Music of Middle Earth podcast. So you won't want to miss that.
0: Yes, and if you like what we're doing here, please like and subscribe, share us with your friends, and get in touch with us on social media to keep track of where we are in the films. Again, we're on Facebook, Twitter, LOTR Party. we're on Instagram, and you can email us at watchpartylotr at gmail.com.
1: Now, this has been an episode of Watch Party, Lord of the Rings on Prime. Please come back and join us next week as we get started with Peter Jackson's The Fellowship of the Ring.
0: And may the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. Until next time. Okay. Okay, Michael, welcome to the Grey Havens. What I'm going to hit you with today...
1: (laughs) So this is the Grey Havens. Oh, wow. (laughs)
0: It's great, yeah. What I'm going to hit you with today is the 20 best. Don't please TV don't hit
1: me. I'm you know I'm just a simple <laughs> podcaster. What I'm
0: going to pat 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 you softly over the head <laughs> with is the 20 best TV dramas since The Sopranos, according to the New York Times. Ooh. Now, now since The Sopranos,
1: us- so not including The Sopranos.
0: Not including The Sopranos because that's clearly the start, according to the author. That's clearly right. the start of the. The, the drama, the right, TV the drama, outrageously, age. the yeah. modern, exactly, the TV drama.
1: Okay, so I will tell you right now that if number one on this list is not Breaking Bad, I'm walking out of the Grey Havens. I'm just, I'm out of here.
0: Don't you worry, don't you worry. Um, <laughs> but I am going to read a little excerpt, just a small excerpt before I jump to the list from the article because I think this is important. Okay. So before The Sopranos, yes, TV dramas could take risks, right? Twin Peaks. Yep. And tell stories about difficult people. NYPD Blue. But after the ducks landed in Tony's backyard pool in January 1999, an immense flock followed. TV series we saw could rely on audiences to pay close attention to a long running story. Right. They could have high visual and narrative ambitions. They could resist quick answers or any answers in the case of the Russian from Pine Barrens to tidy moral conclusions. So basically this article is talking about how iconic it was and and they have again they have a, a framework for analyzing why all of these are iconic hmm. dramas. And we're only talking about dramas. We're not there's no comedies included. These are just TV dramas. So I'm gonna read you the list and then you can weigh in. So number one, the West Wing. Wait, no, by number one, is that like no, they're not, in, they're not in any particular order. Oh, these are okay. just the top 20.
1: Got it, got it.
0: The West Wing, number two. Do you want me to weigh on
1: these as we go? Because already I have things to
0: say. <laughs> <laughs> yep, why don't we read through and okay, then okay, get to okay. the end?
1: Lay, lay it okay, up.
0: just bear them in mind. The West Wing, The Shield, The Wire, Battlestar Galactica, Deadwood, Lost. Veronica Mars.
1: Wait, I thought you Grey's- said the comedies were not included.
0: Okay, but that's a commie drama.
1: Okay, all right.
0: Grey's Anatomy.
1: <laughs> I thought you said Friday the comedies Night's- are not on this list.
0: <laughs> that is a drama. Oh, my <laughs> is- gosh, that's a drama.
1: <laughs> oh, am I supposed to take it seriously? Okay, all right,
0: Come <laughs> on. How dare you, sir? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very serious work. Friday Night Lights. Mm-hmm. Mad Men. Breaking Bad. There yeah. you go. The Good Wife. Adventure Time. Enlightened.
1: Adventure Time. Seriously.
0: I know. I haven't seen Adventure Time, so I can't weigh in on that one. The Americans. Rectify. The Leftovers. Transparent. Jane the Virgin. Atlanta. Hmm. That's it.
1: What? When? Is that twenty? Did you just name twenty?
0: Yeah, I think that was twenty.
1: Holy cow. Um boy, time is a flat circle. That went by so fast. Um when was this <laughs> when did this article come out?
0: Uh twenty nineteen.
1: Twenty nineteen. Okay, that explains it. Because I was gonna say there are a couple glaring omissions from that list.
0: Okay, I have one glaring omission. Okay. What's your number one glaring omission okay. from that well, list? Well, all
1: right, number one glaring omission. Um I have three that I'm thinking of, but um Actually, this is a glaring omission because it was out at the time it had started at the time that this list was going, and it's Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot is an mm. incredible—I would say, I guess, I mean, let's just call it a sci-fi um, show. It's not—I don't think it really—that doesn't sum it up like putting it into that genre box. I don't think is fair, but um, incredible, incredible show. Boy, that show blew my mind when I when I watched it. I
0: haven't yet. seen it.
1: Oh God! Watch it. Do it, please. Okay. Watch it.
0: All right. It seemed very, very dark.
1: It but, is uh, dark. It is. I mean, I'm not opposed
0: I, to dark. But. I am
1: partial to sort of dark themed shows, and it it kind of qualifies. There's there's elements of humor throughout. I mean, I think as Breaking Bad proved, like you gotta have some balance in tone. So if you have dark subject matter, you have to balance it out with some humor. And Mr. Robot does have that. But, okay, um, I'm gonna is, add that to dark. my
0: list. And just to remind people, we are a podcast that's going to be talking. We started this podcast to talk about a show, and so we are connoisseurs. I consider us connoisseurs of shows. We like to talk about them. We like to watch them, and so it, you know, maybe this Gray Havens makes a little bit more sense. Knowing yeah.
1: that we, we are we are connoisseurs. We, we... <laughs> <sighs>
0: um. Well, my biggest gripe about that list was the Game of Thrones was not on it. Mm,
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, if Adventure Time is on this list, how can Game of Thrones get left out? Yeah, Someone's Game got an axe to grind if they're leaving that show off.
0: Game of Thrones came out in 2011. So yeah. Oh, you're why, so right. Why it's not on this list? Um, it is in like their uh, way down in their like honorable mentions section, but that just doesn't cut it for me. No, because Game of Thrones is so iconic, and so many people were gripped by that. Show. So well done. Yeah, that was that was my biggest. Yeah. That uh, show
1: was an event like th- that it show was, was so important in so many ways. TV was going through a shift. Let's remember the TV is going through a shift from the normal like you subscribe to cable to the sort of Netflix model. So things were totally changing. And Netflix was doing we release a show and we release all the, season, the episodes at once. So you binge it. So, the whole episodic, like, let's watch it week to week, let's talk about it at the water cooler, what's going to happen next week. Netflix was saying, we don't care about Mm. that. We're changing the game and we're just going to do binge watching, which had its own appeal. People would sit, you know, sit around the water cooler and talk about the whole series that they binged the night before but Game of Thrones, HBO doubled down and and Game of Thrones sort of brought that back. Like people would have watch parties, which is what we're doing here. They would get together. They would talk, they would celebrate the show, see what their friends, there'd be hype. Um, you know, Netflix, you, you can't hype shows with Netflix because you watch them all at once. And Game of Thrones kind of showed, all right, people still have an appetite for really, really good shows that you can just, you know, watch as you go along and enjoy the community, enjoy the experience of watching it. So I think that it, It has sort of an important place in television history because we were going through a shift and it sort of showed that we can go the other way. And now look what we're, you know, Amazon takes the HBO model. It does not adopt the Netflix model. So Lord of the Rings is going to be a week to week episodic show. They're not going to dump it all out at once.
0: Yeah. And I think it makes for, I think it makes for um, the audience having an experience like you talked about and being able to uh, digest what they've just seen you know, we don't want to turn into these zombies that just consume, consume, consume. You need to digest and think about what you're watching. And good art is going to make you do that. But if you're if you're watching it, binge watching it, as they say, the appreciation greatly diminishes. And so that's what I like a lot about having to wait a week. As frustrating as it is, it also allows you to sort of be right. more involved in the story, be more appreciative, and think about what you've watched.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, Netflix's whole uh it's program, you know, once you finish watching a show it's it's an episode. It's automatically starting the next one. It wants to keep your eyeballs glued to the screen. Um, now I can sit and get sucked in and I will watch sit, I could, I could watch four or five six episodes in a row you know on a on a weekend night because Netflix just keeps running through them and I like it. But am I really as alert? Am I paying attention? Am I as engaged? Am I noticing all the nuances in the fourth, fifth episode in a Netflix binge? No, I'm not. There's just no way. So, you know, to your point, when you're doing it uh, week by week, I mean, I get frustrated. I want to see the next thing so badly. But at the same time, I have some time to reflect, to let it sort of gestate, Um, I think, through different things so that when I – and then maybe I'll watch it again, you know, one or two yeah. times again before the next episode comes out. So when that next episode comes out, boy, that's I'm what really I did primed. with Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's a whole different experience that I really, really appreciate.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Were there let me ask you this. Were there any on that list that you I mean, you clearly disagreed with Adventure Time, which...
1: I I just I could be wrong. I haven't really watched very much Adventure Time. I just it never Yeah,
0: maybe I need to give Adventure Time a shot. I haven't I haven't seen it, but um and you also disagreed with Grey's Anatomy. It sounded like, but were there uh, I, any? Yeah,
1: it just—I never thought of Grey's Anatomy as like a really actually, like a serious quality show. You know, they they, they premise this list uh, by saying Soprano ushered in the age of great television, and then on that list is Grey's Anatomy, which really is just I, kind I of think like a Grey's soap.
0: Anatomy is a great show. Maybe it's I, good, it's but a it's a
1: soap show. opera, basically, right?
0: Uh, I mean, I honestly. This is the honest truth. I think there's so many healthcare workers that resonated so deeply with Grey's Anatomy. Okay. Yes. Just like the culture of of being behind the scenes of the healthcare system, I think resonated with people. Huh. Um, but let me ask you, is there anything on this list that you'd seen every episode of? Like watch the entire thing.
1: The West Wing, for sure. I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it twice. Um, I might've seen it three times. I mean, the West wing. So I went to law school, um, as people who've listened to the podcast, probably gathered, I'm a lawyer. Um, watching the West wing is kind of something that all, I, th- I think all law students, or at least in my age group do. So I talked to some classmates who would have the West wing running in the background as they studied for finals, you know, final oh, exams, wow. which I don't know how you can study. Well, having that, you know, Aaron Sorkin's brilliant, um, dialogue going in the background. I don't know how you can Focus on your studies when that's going on, but some people would do that, and I—that's actually when I watched West Wing was um, for the first time was when I was in law school, and it's just you know Aaron Sorkin's dialogue—it's it, so brilliant. It's not really real. The West Wing simplistic. is
0: your Grey's Anatomy.
1: <laughs> the not comparable. No, you will not do that. <laughs> 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 but it's that's a, that's a great show. So I've seen that um, a couple times through. I've seen Battlestar Galactica all, all the way through. Um, see
0: I have not seen Battlestar oh, so all the way good. through I, I liked it a lot it was one of those shows where I watched you know probably five episodes and I liked it I was very yeah. into it and then I just it, it somehow forgot about it and moved on It's but very, very good. I, I should revisit it I have seen every episode of Mad Men
1: oh yeah the whole yeah.
0: entire I mean what an excellent excellent series I just I love a period drama uh-huh. yeah you know I and I Man just think Man. the characters were gripping, and that is exactly what I picture they were like in right. uh,
1: <laughs> It felt very, <laughs> the 50s and very, 60s. very realistic,
0: very realistic.
1: like it, yeah. it it didn't um let the male characters off easy, like Don Draper Mm-mm. Don Draper's a misogynist. No. he's he's a jackass. I forget some of the other male character names, but like they are like womanizing jackasses. and they don't yeah, let them off the hook in that show. You know, like every good drama, you they force you to empathize with all the characters and see their humanity, right? They show mm-hmm. the humanity of mm-hmm. uh, of all the characters, but they don't um, they don't forgive the they bad don't behavior, them. right? Right.
0: No, they don't. And what I like is the evolution of the characters in that series. Yeah, you see like some radical transformations, and you see such struggle and. It's a long enough series that you really are on that journey with them, which is what I really, really like about it. That might be my favorite show on that list, actually.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a brilliantly made show, and it's I don't know. I'm sure that Elizabeth Moss did stuff before Mad Men, but that's where I think I think that was sort that of her, her breakout. Break. And uh, now she's doing The Handmaid's Tale, which is another really good show, very very good show. That's that, a great show. I that, that do that I like that show. Into. I mean, I do think that shows. show has gone
0: on. Yeah, I do think that show has gone on too long. Oh, you think um, so? I think they should have ended. I, this most current season totally lost me, but I do think that seasons one and two were really excellent. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's the a lot of shows fall into this trap where they just go on past their prime or past when I think a lot of people have an appetite for them, or they get repetitive or they get unoriginal. It's so tough. It's tough to write.
1: The the fr- so Amy um was very frustrated watching the Handmaid's Tale this latest season because it's like. You know, she's so close to, and, you know, spoilers for listeners, if you haven't watched a Handmaid's Tale, I'm going to discuss it a little bit <laughs> right now. So, um, you know, fast forward a little bit if you don't want to be spoiled on The Handmaid's Tale. But, you know, after several seasons, she's finally getting close to like, she can break free. She can be happy. She can get out from under the thumb of um, mm-hmm. the oppressive regime that she's under, um, but she's kind of unable to do that. And it's frustrating as a viewer. You want your protagonist to just do the obvious thing, do the right thing, you know, do the thing that gets you into the happy place. And as the viewers, the omniscient viewers, we know what that is. Just make the right decision and the, your protagonist is not making that right decision and you get so frustrated with them. But I l- actually love that about the way they approached this last season because mm-hmm. a character who goes through what she went through she can't just be in in a happy place now she has to like try and heal and can she heal you know or
0: yeah that's what they're exploring for sure
1: right and they're not shying away from the um from the true scope and depth of the tragedy of what she went through like she's been in a war now she's back from the war now she's going to be in a like an emotional war of of you know can she recover and um reached some true yeah. catharsis and i i like that they didn't shy away from that i mean it's really d- difficult tough subject matter they could have it is tough subject matter
0: it. and that's what and that is probably possibly why i haven't um been as excited about watching it is because it is so heavy yeah. and you know the heaviness of the past year is probably a factor is probably the reason i'm watching shows like schmigadoon which is excellent <laughs> by the way it's on apple tv i highly recommend schmigadoon to everyone and you especially Michael because it is such an excellent show with an excellent premise it's about a couple trapped in a musical and it is specifically for people who don't like musicals you know so my husband watched it with me he loved it he thought it was so funny so I'm more into like comedies these days or dramas that have nothing to do with like dystopian worlds and futures right 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 so I I don't want to say that they're you know the writing's terrible or anything it's probably just a personal uh personal preference to you know no i i have something for you on that
1: on that same point i mean that i have that same criticism of this last season of the handmaid's tale so i just talked about the things that i liked about it but the my criticism of it is that it maintains a dark tone for every minute of the show every second there's not an ounce
0: of joy no
1: there's (laughs) you know and you have to balance it out i can't be
0: i agree it's like a sledgehammer. It's I'm being sl- bludgeoned every yeah. episode. Yeah.
1: You can't expect me to maintain that level of like emotional, like I'm, my, my hairs are standing on end for every minute of 60 minutes every episode. You know, you can't expect that from me. And when you write a show that way, the heavy moments just end up you're like you're too exhausted. You know, you lose yeah. me. I, I can't engage with the heavy exactly. moments as much.
0: That's exactly where I'm at. And speaking of a show that does a great job of blending very intense subject matter with moments of levity, let's talk about The Wire. Oh. I mean, how what long a is show. this podcast? I know, and you know, this will be what we end on because we've got to wrap it up. But do we just do we? this? Ex- I this have to, show. Don't,
1: don't let us end this Great havens before <laughs> I make a recommend. I have a recommendation for you, and it's so good. You'll oh, okay,
0: it. yes. The Wire, though, is just turns everything on its head for me in the way that you get everybody's perspective. And you also get so much compassion for these characters. And you get you get um, just so many different worlds colliding in this show. And it's, mm-hmm. to me, such an important show to watch for people who may not have a reference point for folks who grow up with adverse childhood experience, adverse experiences, and quote-unquote wrong side of the tracks.
1: Yeah, The Wire does what I think every show now, to some degree, wants to do or aspires to do, which is engage in broad sociopolitical commentary about the state of the world that we live in. You know, yeah. and and th- and that is what the wire is about. I mean, it's yeah. Every season focuses on a different aspect of um, American life. You know, in terms of like, there's a season that focuses on the police. There's a season that focuses on focuses on the education system, politics. I mean, it right. tackles all of these subject matters Everything. very directly, and yet it feels very personal. The characters you are, mm-hmm, you know, you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you care about these characters, and uh, it feels very grounded, and you're not at all lost in the scope of the task that the directors and David Simon has took upon themselves in, in starting the show. And every, I feel like every show wants to do that to some degree, and The Wire does it full on, full bore, 100%, and they do it well without losing the audience.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's no, you know, it just smashes. Before the show, I feel like the good guy, bad guy trope is is still out there, but it smashes that completely. There's no good guy, bad guy. It's so much more nuanced. It's so it's so complicated. It's so involved. And it brings you into the struggle. Right. It brings you into the tension of where these people meet each other.
1: Right. Well, and that's what uh, the Sopranos did, right? Is it ushered in the age of the antihero, you know, um, James Gandolfini playing Tony Soprano. He's your protagonist, but also he's uh psychotic murderer, you yeah, know, narcissist. Yeah, Vi- deeply violent <laughs> person. Yeah, yeah. And yet you root for him, even though you see all those things in him, right? You root for him in some way. And, the
0: therapy um, sessions were just so brilliant because you're now you're in his world.
1: Right. And you're, you're watching Not just in him. his world, but in his mind.
0: In his mind, Yeah. yeah. Just... Absolutely wonderful. Well, thank you for weighing in um, on the best TV drama series of all time, and that has been our Gray Havens episode for you guys. But if before we go,
1: one recommendation.
0: Oh uh, yes, yes. Give me your recommendation.
1: Okay, so you you recommended I don't even know it. Schmigadoon. Schmigadoon.
0: Schmigadoon. It's, it's a title spoof designed on not to be remembered. <laughs> musical theater nerds will remember it instantly because it's a play on Brigadoon which is okay. a musical so okay. right.
1: and
0: it just spoofs every musical out there it spoofs them all in a beautiful and hilarious manner and the actors it's so all SNL Lauren Michaels produced it it's great Oh wow. just okay. watch it it's all excellent right.
1: I'll, I'll check that out so this is kind of along not exactly the same lines but I, I, I came to it um, in the same way. I needed a little a break from the really heavy TV I was watching. Um it's sort of a it's sort of a comedy, but it is actually very much genre bending. And it is called Search Party on HBO.
0: Okay. It I think I've heard of this before.
1: Alia Shawk um it. some other actors that you may recognize, um, but it is a comedy, it's also a drama, it's also like a noir f- show. It just mixes these genres. It's it it mocks awesome. millennials relentlessly. I mean, Perfect. it is love it, it is so good and so unique. <laughs> it's not like anything else I've seen on TV. So they do it's just a really wonderful thing. And so check it out. It, it is fun. I mean, you will enjoy it, um, but it also has Excellent. other dramatic layers to it as you go. So worth checking Perfect. out.
0: I love those, those shows that are just hard to describe because there's, everything they come they encompass a lot of different genres i think those are some of the best shows so speaking of I other shows that should up.
1: have been on this list before we you know the music takes us out <laughs> the Watchmen on hbo i know it's only one season it's a mini series but it is amazing
0: the Watchmen.
1: the Watchmen. Have I or I what's the premise of the Watchmen?
0: because oh. i i'm trying to remember if i've seen that okay we've
1: talked about this Watchmen refers to the greatest graphic novel of all time um i mean it, it won all kinds of award like like the Hugo award because it is just a genuine gem of American literature okay. of Americana. Um, and it's, a, so it's a graphic novel. So it's a superhero style thing. Um, and a, a movie adaptation of the graphic novel was made and that came out, you know, several years ago, this show is a sequel to the graphic novel. So it is set in the universe created by the graphic novel, but in no way is adapting the plot because it's, it's set, in uh, a time subsequent to the events of the graphic novel. So it is made out of whole cloth by the writers, but it, okay. a, which I was like, I was very, I was like, this is suspect, you know, is this, could this possibly be good? Actually, this is perfect for this podcast, because if you wonder, can someone make a good adaptation, uh, write a new story in a world created by someone else and have that work? The Watchmen, on HBO proves that it can be done. It is one Ooh. of the best miniseries I've ever seen. It is done so well. It winks to the audience. You know, it refers back to the, the source material. You know what universe you're in, for sure. Wow, wow. But it is a new plot, and it is just so well done. I mean, I can't, I can't recommend it enough.
0: Well, my the bar is set very high. Here's the deal, Michael. I'm gonna watch The Watchmen, and somebody like me who's not a big Marvel fan, I will get back to you. So the next Grey Havens episode should be like, you watch Schmigadoon, I will watch The Watchmen.
1: Okay, and okay. And we'll see.
0: We'll see if these two- Yeah, this is, The if, Watchmen
1: is not Marvel. I would recommend- um, Oh, it's
0: not Marvel. Okay. Oh, no,
1: no, it's not Marvel. Um, I think it, I think it is a-
0: Hold the phone. Okay, but I am, uh, yeah, I am going to watch it because I'm looking for a new show.
1: I, and I, I would, I do want to recommend that you, I hate to do this, but that you read the, the comic book first. Um, I because I know you don't things. like comic books, or <laughs> no, it's not, you're like your no, thing. It's, it's, it's not, just I not have your,
0: read comic books before. I know, it's I know,
1: but <laughs> I'm not, not a. <laughs> I didn't grow up reading. Yeah, it's DC Comics. It's it's it was released by okay. DC Comics. Um, okay. I didn't grow up reading a bunch of comic books either. Actually, like I was kind of not allowed to read a lot of comic books, so I I didn't grow up in the you know reading all the different imprints of comic books. But I appreciate comic book stuff, and I've grown to appreciate it and love it as an adult. But The Watchmen is just, you know, whatever you think a comic book is, The Watchmen is something more. Throw it out the window. um, Because it's just a beautiful, amazing, um, complex, challenging text.
0: Ooh, I'm excited. I'm going to jump right in. I mean, maybe, possibly tonight, I will start The (laughs) Watchmen. I'm looking forward. Okay. My, I have high hopes. So, all right, folks, if you want to watch the Watchmen,
1: I've se- <laughs> I now, us, I now immediately regret setting the expectations <laughs> so high. My bar can... is
0: very high. <laughs> I'm going in with a totally open mind. Know that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm totally open mind. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next time.